Welcome to Not A Christian Podcast. It's not a Christian podcast. It's a podcast that just happens to be Christian. In this podcast, we tell stories, we talk about life, faith, and pretty much anything else you can imagine. Now let's jump into it. Welcome back to the show. It's episode 34. Right here on Friday, June the 4th. We made it to June, y'all. Summer's here. I went to my first live sporting event this week in like, I don't know, it was February of 2020. Last time I went to a live sporting event, Sol Ross basketball game. But this week I got to watch a game of America's pastime, the greatest sport that ever was, baseball. There's an independent league team, a professional team here in Alpine, Texas. You probably didn't know that. It's part of the Pecos League. But yeah, they play here in Alpine in the summer. So I went to a baseball game. Uh, Get there. Looks like it's going to get rained out. And it did get delayed for like over an hour. But at the end of the day, got to play baseball. I didn't stay for the whole game uh, because like 11 o'clock, it was the sixth inning. So I was like, I just just can't do anymore. I got to go home. Got to get my beauty rest so I can go and be fresh and record the podcast tomorrow because it's that important to me. But yeah, went to my first live sporting event in so long. It was good to be back out there. It, it was it was a lot of fun. Got a free hot dog. That's cool. Didn't put ketchup on it because that's disgusting. Put put mustard only on there. But the the, the game was was pretty ridiculous. So in these in these independent league teams, you know, it's it's not the best players because if they're the best players, they would be like in you know the minor leagues or major leagues. But the final score, I, I looked it up later because I didn't, you know, stay for the end of the game. It was like 19 to 14. We lost. We lost to Tucson. But it was fun. It was a good time. But 19 to 14, that's a heck of a baseball game. But it wasn't like, I don't know, the pitching wasn't good. The defense was horrible. <laughs> but all in all, it's, it's fun to watch live sports again. Fun to watch a baseball game. I've, I've expressed in the past that while I do the show, I'm known to partake in a little unsweet tea. You guys know I like black coffee, but I very rarely record in the mornings. But in the afternoon, unsweet tea is a little more my jam. But I got a little little brand shout out this week of another drink, Frosty brand sodas. When I was in high school, I loved Frosty cherry limeades. I don't remember where I first had it, but I remember my mom would get them when I was in like, probably like, I don't know, junior high, early high school. And they were delicious. And when me and my friends would like tailgate, you know, during lunch, as we talked about on episode 13 of Not A Christian Podcast, so if you want to hear that story, go back and listen to that. But we didn't have them every week because they were kind of a little hard to find and a little little pricey for us. But every now and again, we'd have a Frosty Cherry Limeade in our tailgates. And these Frosty Cherry Limeades come in a glass bottle. And then for like a decade... So since I've been in high school, I've not been able to find them. Back in March, I was camping at Davis Mountain State Park and I forgot to take my camp stove so I went to the grocery store there in Fort Davis looking for like these little cans where you can like light them up and they produce like this flame and you can cook over them I found some but they did not work <laughs> but also while I was at that grocery store I found the dang Frosties the Frosty Cherry Limeades in, in a glass bottle and there was like a full full shelf stocked full of them so it was it was a heck of a reunion. Like I said, it's there's a lot of memories of drinking these out of the back of a truck during a tailgate. So, you know, had my my class reunion, ten year class reunion this past weekend, and so I thought, you know, might as well make it pretty enjoyable because me and my friends like that was kind of always our thing, always has been our thing, even as adults. We like to hang out in parking lots, just kind of loiter around our vehicles. Never really a planned thing, but it just happened. But so we decided to make the plan thing this time and went out with some of my friends after we left the reunion and drank some frosty cherry limeades. I've got a frosty root beer right now and it's pretty dang good. Yeah, I think the best part, the best part of the class reunion was, was just chilling on my tailgate, drinking frosty cherry limeades, just kind of like old times. So shout out to everybody that was there. It was a good time drinking a frosty root beer right now. Thinking about you. This episode's for you. Something else I did this week. I bought a wireless mouse, and this thing kind of blew my mind. Let me tell you why. It's, I mean, okay, so I'm a pretty simple guy. You know, it doesn't take a lot to impress me in certain things. In certain areas it does, but in, like, technology, I hate technology. Let me tell you, the, 
Mm, no, no story for another time. But I, <laughs> technology kind of amazes me when it does things that like you know I wasn't expecting. So I bought a wireless mouse because I got a new laptop. I was like, hey, might as well get a new wireless mouse too. Edit the podcast a little faster. And there was this little plug-in that goes into your phone, and you can plug this wireless mouse into your phone. And there's a little cursor that pops up on the screen, and it was pretty cool. I was like using it. I was like clicking around, doing stuff, and then I realized this is absolutely unnecessary. Why would you need that on your phone? Uh, I don't know. It's cool that it can do it, I guess, but I don't know. I don't know why you would use a wireless mouse on your phone. Just click one letter at a time or click one button at a time. doesn't really make much sense. Maybe it's used for gaming if you do some kind of gaming on your phone. Uh, I don't know. Just let me know if you know, I guess. But hey, we've got a full episode today because it's the kickoff of our summer series. So just to give you a little roadmap of where we're going the rest of the way, we're going to kick that off. We're going to talk about premillennialism and and that view of the end times. And hopefully you learn something. It gets a little bit, I don't know, wordy, but sometimes you have to trudge through the mud to get any kind of clarity on things. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to kick off the series talking about kind of the main views of the end times. And then after that, We've got another tier list for you guys. So we're going to be ranking public bathroom problems, the things that happen in public bathrooms that are just unappealing, the things that need to change, and we're going to determine which one of them are the worst. You don't want to miss any of it right here on Not A Christian Podcast. Let's go ahead and jump into the first segment. Okay, so the long-awaited summer series is finally here. We are talking all things eschatology. And if you don't know what that word means, basically the Greek word eschatos means last. So eschatology is basically the study of the last things, or more commonly known in our vernacular as maybe the end times, or in the super dramatic sense, the apocalypse. But when it comes to this topic, it's, it's something that I've really ever since the beginning of the show wanted to talk about, but I knew it couldn't be very well covered in, in one single episode, uh, much less one single segment within an episode. So I decided to make this the summer series. When it comes to eschatology or the end times, a lot of times we think like, oh, it doesn't really matter that much as long as we get there in the end. And to a degree, I would, I would totally agree with you. I know Christians who are very dedicated believers, ministers who minister very faithfully, who believe in a variety of end times views, including all the ones we're going to talk about on the show. And I definitely lean more towards one, and I'm not going to tell you which one right now, although if you've really paid attention in the past, and if you're familiar with the different eschatological views, you're probably going to be able to figure out pretty quick which one I am a proponent of. So, so the, the way we're going to go about this is this week, next week, and the week after that, we're going to kind of go over, I guess, the three main views, but the one we're going over today is kind of split into two, and you'll see what I'm talking about here in a minute. Uh, and then at the very end of the summer series, so a few weeks from now, we're going to really explain like why it matters. And that's when I'm going to tell you which one of these I believe in and why I think that's the superior eschatological view or end times theology. So basically, the three main views, the one we're going to go over today is premillennialism. There's another one called postmillennialism and another one called amillennialism. And premillennialism that we're talking about today is traditionally divided up into two different types. There's historic premillennialism and there's dispensational premillennialism. Those are big words and we're going to go over all of them. So all four of those end times views, or all three, however you want to view it, all have obviously a word in common, millennialism, referring to a millennium or a period of a thousand years that's referred to in Revelation 20. That verse reads, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's where we get the idea of millennium from. And all of these end times views have this concept of a millennium, a time in which Jesus reigns. And then you have the prefixes pre, post, and ah. 
So the millennium is the time in which Jesus will reign on earth. According to premillennialism, Jesus is going to come back before his thousand-year reign, thus the prefix pre, and he's going to bring an end to all things at that time, and the millennium is typically a 1,000-year literal reign according to premillennialism. So on the flip side, we've got postmillennialism. Christ will return after a long period of blessing on earth. Jesus will come after that millennium. The millennium is not necessarily a literal 1,000 years, but will begin at a time in history at some point after the resurrection of Jesus. And then finally, there's amillennialism. The prefix ah typically means without, but that's kind of misleading when referring to amillennialism because amillennialism doesn't deny the presence of a millennium, a millennial reign of Christ, but the 1,000 years in Revelation 20, according to an amillennial perspective, are not a literal 1,000 years, but a metaphorical 1,000 years, a long period of time that we are living in right now. And if that was a lot to take in, don't worry, because we're going to spend time breaking each one of those down. And there have been times on this show when if you're paying attention or if you've been familiar with these end time views, you'll probably know which one I identify with the most. However, for the next few weeks, I'm going to try my best to be unbiased as possible. So bear in mind when I'm presenting each one of these eschatological views, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, know that I'm not a proponent of two of them. And I'm going to do my best when I do talk about the one that I do affirm, that I do believe, to not really let you know until a few weeks from now. Later on in this series, I'll tell you what I believe and why, and why I think it matters for ministry and for the life of a believer and for the church. It's not a salvation issue, but it's an issue that definitely influences how we act, how we relate to God, how we relate to other, how we relate to brokenness in the world, how we relate to lost people in communicating who our Jesus is and what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So as I mentioned, premillennialism is the idea that Jesus will come back before the millennial reign of Christ. And also, as mentioned, there are two major views among premillennials that are kind of divided into two different categories, historic or classical premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Let's start off by talking about historical premillennialism. And at first, obviously, it was just called premillennialism. Back when this was a newer idea or a fresher idea, they didn't call it historical because it was the present reality in which they were living. Premillennialism went through some changes in the 1800s and some people kind of broke off, made it a separate thing. So that's why we call it historical premillennialism. In its earliest days, it was simply known as premillennial theology. It holds to the idea that Jesus will come back. He will reign for 1,000 years. And most of the time, historic premillennialists will not necessarily say that's a literal 1,000 years. Most historic premillennialists will not say that. However, some will. What historic premillennialists might say is that they have a true or a face value reading of Revelation chapter 20. I alluded to this passage earlier. We read verse 6, but here are verses 1 through 6 from Revelation 20. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, as mentioned, historical premillennialism often just means a very literal 
word-by-word, line-by-line interpretation of that text from Revelation. They view Revelation as a prophecy, something that has not yet happened but will, to give us a roadmap of the end times. It's a literal picture in which the Antichrist, Satan, in which the Antichrist is a very real individual, in which Satan will very much have physical power on earth. All those things will one day be a reality. So basically, according to a historical or classical premillennial disposition, first, Satan will be bound and incarcerated in a bottomless pit for a thousand years, where he will deceive the nations no more, as he had done through the Antichrist, as he has worked through the Antichrist to do that in the world before he was bound up. And at that time, when Satan is bound and thrown into the pit for a thousand years, all the believers who have died will resurrect, and they will share in rulership with Jesus over the earth for a thousand years, and it'll be a great time of of prosperity, it'll be a great time of peace on earth. And after that period of a thousand years, Satan will be loosened from his chains and he will influence non-believers that are still on the earth to rebel against God. This will result in one final battle, which will be won by Jesus, and Satan will ultimately be thrown into the lake of fire and will no longer exist. After this, those who had not been raised before the millennium will be raised from the dead. So, so all the non-believers from before Jesus came back and everyone who died during the millennial reign of Jesus will be resurrected and there will be one final judgment and anyone whose name is not in the Lamb's book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire and finally death itself will be defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. So then the eternal kingdom will begin. The Antichrist, Satan, and death will all be done away with. So historical premillennialism will often teach that doctrine should be based on the New Testament alone because the only place that speaks of an actual millennium in the Bible is Revelation 20. And that leads us into kind of the the other view of premillennialism, dispensationalism. So just imagine that dispensationalism is everything we just talked about, only it made some changes, added a few things throughout the years. And they rely heavily on the book of Daniel to do that. So when we're talking about premillennial dispensationalism, this might be familiar to a lot of you. Think about the Left Behind series. If you ever had those books growing up or you saw the movies, that's basically what premillennial dispensationalism is. Most Christians in America, kind of by default, by what we've seen and heard around us, are dispensationalists. Once again, this is a view that Christ will return before his millennial reign. And and the word dispensationalism, let's go ahead and get into that because that's a very long word. It's not a very intuitive word. But basically, a dispensation is an administration of time that God has granted, that God has ordained, God has appointed. And dispensationalism began with J.N. Darby in the 1800s when he interpreted the Bible in such a way that he was able to find seven dispensations of human history that were both described and prescribed in the Bible. The seven dispensations, first is innocence, which is everything that happened before the fall where all of creation lived in peace, then Adam and Eve sinned and ended the dispensation of innocence. Next was the dispensation of conscience. That was from the fall of humanity, Adam and Eve, to the flood of Noah. Humanity was left to rule by their own conscience and will, and it was tainted by sin. And that led to the third dispensation, the dispensation of human government. After the flood, which happened after the flood, God promised to never flood the earth again, and he commanded Noah and his sons to repopulate the earth and to fill the earth but instead they rebelled and chose to, to build the Tower of Babel. But God decided to just scatter them out to create confusion, and he gave them different nations, languages, and cultures to further the institution of human government. Next, the fourth dispensation is the dispensation of promise that began at the call of Abraham. His descendants waited for the promise that was given to him by God. Abraham and the other patriarchs who were Isaac and Jacob a.k.a. Israel, and the enslavement of the Jewish people to Egypt that we see in the book of Exodus. When the Jews left Egypt, the dispensation of promise ended, 
and thus began the fifth dispensation, the dispensation of law. That one lasted for a long time, about 1,500 years. It began with the Exodus because that's when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And this ended at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus because it was there that the law was fulfilled. So after Jesus came the dispensation of grace. And according to a dispensational view, we are currently in the sixth out of seven dispensation, the dispensation of grace. It's also called the age of grace or the church age. The church age will end at the rapture of the church and there will be a seven-year tribulation period in which the unbelievers living on the earth that got left behind will experience God's judgment and some will come to faith during the tribulation and the tribulation will end at the battle of Armageddon when Jesus returns and defeats Satan and all of his followers. And after that, we'll begin the seventh and final dispensation, the millennial kingdom, the 1,000 years of peace where Christ will reign on earth. Satan will be released and some people will follow him into a battle against God and they will once again be defeated. There will be a final judgment of all people and the old heaven and earth will be destroyed. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and the eternal kingdom will begin. So in short, the timeline of dispensational premillennialism goes like this. Jesus raptures believers, both current and the ones who have died. This is, however, not the second coming because he just raptures them. He just takes them up out of the earth and doesn't come back. They will meet him in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then after all the believers are raptured out of the earth will be the seven-year tribulation. And that's when the people of Israel will be converted and begin following Christ. Then will come the battle of Armageddon. Christ is going to come back and win that battle. He's going to raise all the people that died during the battle. He's going to judge the nations, going to bound Satan up, going to reign for a thousand years going to release Satan from captivity to fight against the church, but Jesus comes and defeats him once and for all. And then all those who were not raised the first time will come back to be judged. And all those who were not to be found with Jesus will be cast into the lake of fire. And all those who know Jesus will go to live for all of eternity in the eternal kingdom. A premillennial view, particularly a dispensationalist view, kind of go at this angle of straightforwardness in the Bible. If God wants to accomplish something, he will do it in a straightforward way. They say that we can't read these things metaphorically, as some of the other views that we'll get to later would say. They say the historical content of the Bible is to be taken literally, as well as doctrinal teachings, moral teachings, prophecy, etc. A dispensationalist will argue that God would not use metaphors in things that were intended for God's people because God does not want to cause confusion among his people. And among a premillennial view, there is a big emphasis on the sovereignty of God and the foreknowledge of God. And I think that's where a lot of the comfort of the premillennial view comes from, particularly the dispensational view. Because a dispensationalist says that God has been moving throughout human history. And God set these seven ages, these seven dispensations, very intentionally. And he is making everything go perfectly in order to fall into those dispensations. And God will continue to perfectly direct things all the way to the very end where King Jesus will reign in victory. Humanity has sinned, humanity has fallen short, but God's sovereignty overcomes that. So you see Moses promising the future to his people. You see King David over Israel, a kingdom that God said would last forever. You see the prophet Isaiah announcing a kingdom to which there would be no end. The angel told Mary that God would give her son the throne of David and he would reign forever. During Jesus' ministry and after his resurrection, he taught about the kingdom and the restoration of Israel. Paul lives and encourages other people to live in constant anticipation of the return of Jesus and the establishment of the eternal kingdom. And Revelation paints a picture of a conquering Christ that comes back and sets all things right, makes all things well. So from Genesis, according to a premillennial view, God has been creating order. 
He gave humanity, he made humanity in a Trinitarian image for them to have dominions over fish, birds, livestock, animals, etc. And they were given the task to fill the earth and be responsible stewards of the earth. And that theme unfolds throughout the rest of scripture. So when it comes to a dispensational premillennial view, there are a couple of emphases that didn't really quite exist in the historical premillennial view. The first of which is one of the big ones, the rapture. The idea that one day all believers will be basically taken out of their context. All believers will suddenly be snatched away from the earth so that there's there's just a pile of clothes left on the couch that someone's sitting on. There's a car going down the interstate and when the rapture happens that car is just going to keep going because the person that was in it got taken up to heaven and so so that idea is strictly a dispensationalist view and they get this idea from first thessalonians chapter four mostly where paul is providing words of comfort to the thessalonian believers he says that those who are alive and left until the coming of jesus will have no advantage over those who have already died. And in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with those who have already died in the clouds, and they will meet Jesus, and they will always be with the Lord. Another place is, is Luke chapter 17 where it talks about two, basically, where it talks about three occurrences, where there are two people in bed, and one is taken away, one is left behind. There are two people in the field, one is taken away, one is left behind. And the idea here that a premillennial dispensationalist will say is that that's prescriptive of the rapture. Those who belong to Jesus will be taken out of this earth, and those who do not belong to Jesus will not be taken. So that is perhaps the biggest difference between the two premillennial views that we talked about today. And as mentioned before, the other big view that kind of separates dispensational premillennialism from historic premillennialism is the very strict literalism with the 1,000-year reign. A dispensationalist will almost always say it is a literal 1,000 years, while a historical premillennialist may say it's a metaphorical 1,000 years, a.k.a. a very long amount of time. So that's just kind of the overview of what premillennial theology is, and I know it got pretty wordy. It got pretty deep. You might be more confused than you were to begin with. Maybe you thought, there's no way there can be any other view because I grew up with the Left Behind series. How can there be people that don't believe that? Well, over the next couple weeks, we're going to go ahead and just go into those other places. I'm really excited for where this is going to go, but let's go ahead and transition to the next segment. All right, so this segment of the show was inspired by my multitude of travels that I had over the past five, six weeks. And I don't know about you, but a part of my travel that I really love is drinking coffee. You know, especially if you got a morning drive, you got a long drive ahead of you, there's nothing like a cup of coffee to to keep you awake, keep you energized, give you a little enjoyment as you're going down the road. But the downside to drinking a lot of coffee on the road is that I gotta stop at a lot of public bathrooms. And I've had a lot of experience in public bathrooms just because I, I travel so much. And so I there was there was this one event that, that happened in a public bathroom that inspired this whole segment of the show. And I'll let you know what that is when we get there. But a few weeks ago, we did a tier list uh, where we ranked awkward Bible study moments. So if you don't remember how it works or if you've never been here before, never seen a tier list, basically S tier is the very top. A tier is second, B, C, D, F, like a grading system, only S is at the top. So this week, we're going to be ranking on this tier list public bathroom problems. Okay, stuff that happens in a public restroom that just kind of makes you shake your head, makes you say, I'm never going to use public restrooms again. And then you get in your car and three hours later down the road, you got to stop again. So first off on the list, graffiti on the stalls. You know, I've never, I've, 
I remember even as a kid, I would see graffiti on the stalls of a public bathroom, and I'd be like, wow, this is what adults do when they get older, I guess, when they get a little rebellious. And now that I am an adult, I've still never had that desire. So to this day, I always just wonder, who are these people? Who are these people that just decide to write graffiti on bathroom walls? And it's always super inappropriate. It's always, speaking of inappropriate things, when I ask you guys this question on social media, uh, somebody said something very inappropriate as a response. And that is not going to be featured on today's show. Uh, But thank you to everybody else who keeps it clean for the most part. (laughs) But graffiti, graffiti, it's, it's, it's never helpful. Well, it actually did influence who I voted for in the last election cycle. I will say that. (laughs) <laughs> not really but 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 that is something that a lot of people write on a on a bathroom wall like who like who they don't like <laughs> as a political candidate but yeah bathroom graffiti it's just it's just bizarre and there's there's this one gas station in ozona texas it's at the stripes it's kind of a dirty gas station dirty bathrooms and there's a lot of graffiti on the walls uh but but ultimately it really doesn't affect me too much doesn't really affect my public bathroom experience that much so i'm just going to go ahead and put that one on the f tier it's not a huge problem next up we're going to go with one that several people submitted the cracks in the stalls like between the door and the frame where you make awkward eye contact with people who are sitting on the toilet Uh, my friend colton when he submitted this he called it satan's crack and yeah i get that uh, because it's super awkward to make eye contact with someone while either they are doing their business or you're doing their business and they walk up, try to open, and then as they find out it's locked, they simultaneously look inside and, you know, there you are, eye to eye. So, yeah, that's getting an A tier. That is definitely super awkward moment, definitely a huge problem. Apparently in Europe, their, their bathroom stalls are a lot more private. They're, like, got real doors on them. And that's how the bathrooms at like really nice gas stations are, like a Bucky's. You know, you're you're not seeing inside because it's like a real door on hinges with like an actual doorknob. So yeah, cracks in the stall, Satan's crack. That's a problem. A tier. Next up. Uh, so if you're if you're a man, you're gonna you're gonna know what I'm talking about. For the ladies out there that are listening, I might be teaching you something you've never even known before, something you've never, hopefully, never experienced, uh, because it's about a urinal. So I hope you've never had to use a urinal. Whenever someone doesn't leave enough space between urinals, and what I mean by that, so basically urinal etiquette, a lot of bathrooms, kind of standard procedure is to have three urinals, right? If you're the only one using them, you do not go to the middle urinal because then you force the next guy to come in there to have to walk up next to you and use the one right next to you. So you go to either one on the right or the one on the left. And, And if another person comes in, They'll just go skip that middle one and go to the other one. That way you have a urinal in between you. And if things are, you know, packed in there, it is acceptable to use that middle one if there's two guys to your, one to your left, one to your right. Uh, and it's, it's, it's awkward, but it's acceptable. And the, and the awkwardness increases with the less privacy you have. So some urinals have like dividers in between them. And that makes it a lot more okay to use a urinal next to somebody. Some don't have a divider. So you just you just go. You stare straight ahead. You don't make small talk at a urinal. That's a big no-no. You don't look to your left. You don't look to your right. You just go up. You do your business. And you zip up and you get out of there. And when somebody doesn't adhere to this bro code, it's a, it's a horribly awkward moment. It's so bad. It's S-tier. S-tier bathroom problem when someone uses the urinal next to you when there's an open one somewhere else, S tier. Next, we have grunting old men. For whatever reason, I have been in many bathrooms where, and it seems like the older the man is, the more noises they make when using the bathroom. Number one or number two. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I have straight up like walked in a bathroom and there was a guy who was just so emotive so expressive about what he was doing in the bathroom stall that that I just walked out of the bathroom. I said, if there was ever a bowel movement that made me say those things that he was saying, (laughs) that would be like a toxic waste area that I would not want anyone else to go in. So I wasn't going to use the stall after that guy. I straight up walked out. I'm not sure if he lived with some of the things he was saying. But (laughs) anyway, so the older the men are, 
the more noises and grunting they make, and it's just a super awkward moment. That gets A tier, because it's just kind of freaking weird. <laughs> Next up on the list, uh, several people submitted something like this. Uh, someone said, general filth. Another one just said, uncleanliness. And yeah, that is a problem in public restrooms. Uh, but it's also kind of anticipated. It's just kind of like that just comes with being a public bathroom. It's not the cleanest place in the world. So I'll just go ahead and give that one that one a C tier. You know, it's, it is a problem, but it's expected. It's general standard procedure. Public bathrooms are nasty. Nothing to write home about here. Uh, next up, uh, one, somebody submitted uh, hearing other people. And yes, that, that is an issue. Uh, not only grunting, but just hearing them excrete things out of their body uh, is just never pleasant. But also, I'm going to lump into this people hearing you in that moment when you're trying to be silent, that moment when you're trying to not let other people hear your, your bowel movements going on and, and you're just waiting for them to leave the bathroom. It's, it's a horrible moment. That's A tier. So whether it's you trying to be quiet and people hearing you or you hearing other people, it's all bad. A tier. Next up, non-hand washers. This happens to me so much. I'd say half the people I see in public bathrooms don't wash their hands. Because I'll go to the bathroom, do my thing. I'll go up to the sink, wash my hands. There's a mirror so you can see what's going on behind you. I see all kinds of men just walk straight from the toilet or the urinal straight out the door. Don't even look at the sink. Sometimes they'll make awkward eye contact with me through the mirror and it's like, they know that I know that they didn't wash their hands, but they, they aren't, they have no shame. They just walk on out. It's, it's pretty gross, pretty disgusting. Uh, so non-hand washer is going to go ahead and they're everywhere. I would, yeah, 50% of people, that's, that's horrible. And I bet there's some that do wash their hands that only do it because it's a public bathroom. There are other people in there that are going to judge them. So if, if I've ever seen you in a public restroom, and you walked out without washing your hands and you think I was judging you? I was judging you. That's disgusting. Be better than that. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't really affect me, except for I have to like reach to the bathroom handle that they just reached on, and I know what they've been doing. Maybe whatever establishment we're in, they're out there touching all the stuff, and I'm going to be touching all that stuff, so I'm giving that a B tier. That's disgusting. Wash your hands, people. It's not that hard. Next up. When you are in a bathroom, the floor under the toilet is wet. You don't know what it is. Maybe they just cleaned it. Hopefully they just cleaned it. But you got your, your pants around your ankles and they touch the ground and they get all wet from the floor. Absolutely disgusting. But it is avoidable. So I'm going to give it a B tier. Next up, this is the event that inspired this entire segment of the show. When you're in a public bathroom... And, and, and it's, it's on the subject of washing your hands. This type of sink is on the rest stop between Fort Stockton and Ozona. And if you don't know where either of those places are, congratulations. Never go there. There's absolutely nothing. Sorry if you're from one of those places, but that's just the way it is. There's these weird sinks there. And this isn't the only place I've ever seen these sinks. But it's those sinks where you have to be turning the knob, like actively turning the knob at all times in order to make it run. And when you let go of the knob, it like goes back into position to where it's off. And I get why they do it. It's to save water so people don't leave it running. But it makes it impossible to like wash both of your hands at the same time. So you get all, get your soap on your hand and then you try to turn the water on and you got to keep holding it with one hand so you can't truly wash your hands. It cre- so when, when I walk into a bathroom, okay, especially a rest stop on the interstate, I expect it to be a seamless experience, right? I go in, use the restroom, walk out of the stall, wash my hands, walk out, get in my vehicle and go. It's convenient, right? Rest stop. You don't have to go through a gas station. Typically, you don't have to wait in line because there's a lot of bathroom space but then when those stupid sinks show their stupid face it creates an insurmountable obstacle i did not walk into a bathroom on the side of the interstate hoping or expecting an insurmountable obstacle in there it doesn't make sense there that shouldn't exist there should not be an insurmountable obstacle in a public restroom and that's what those sinks are 
and you have to constantly be holding it. So your options are just to like kind of rinse off your hands one at a time or to ask a stranger like, hey, can you hold this water on while I wash my hands? I'm not doing that. You kidding me? That's why I keep hand sanitizer in my truck at all times. But when I run across those stupid sinks, so so yeah, if, in case you can't tell, that's S tier. That is one of the worst public bathroom experiences you can possibly have. Stupid sinks. Why would anyone ever even think of that? Why would anybody ever install one of those? But that it is what it is, I guess. We got to deal with it. That's S tier. Next up was something that several people said uh, when they, they submitted their own answers. And, and I've never really seen it to be a problem. But they said when there's no toilet seat covers. And I, I use a toilet seat cover when it's, when it's available to me. Uh, it might be weird. I don't know. But apparently a lot of people like them. And I wouldn't have put this very high on the list, but like I said, I had, I had several people say it, that that's a, that's a big issue. So I'm going to go ahead and put that in the B tier. That's a pretty big problem. B tier problem. Next up, when the toilet seat is still warm from the previous person and you just know that like you're making direct contact with something that someone else was making direct contact with just maybe even seconds before it just, the thought of that is just, oh, it's disturbing. I don't like it, but I'm going to go ahead and put it on D tier because at the end of the day, it's not really all that nasty. Uh, it's just kind of the thought of it. So yeah, that gets D tier. Next up, we have non-door lockers. People that go in the stall with a door with a lock on it and they choose not to lock it. And most of the time when that happens, it's kids. So I guess they get a pass. They just don't think about it. But there's this one time I was at a McDonald's in San Angelo. It was the one on Southwest. Me and my buddy Josh, it was like late at night, and I don't know why we were at McDonald's instead of Whataburger, but, you know, I've repented of it since. But we were at the McDonald's, and we were kind of sitting over by the drink machines, over kind of where the bathrooms are. So I get up to go to the bathroom, and I open the stall, and there's a McDonald's employee in there. And he's, you know, doing his, he's sitting on the toilet, doing his thing. And the thing about this stall, it wasn't like you walked in on the side of the toilet and I saw like, you know, a side view of this dude, but the toilet was like facing the door. So I saw everything and I just, and, and it, it was such an awkward moment. You know, those, those moments where you don't expect, you, I didn't open that door expecting there to be a McDonald's employee dropping a deuce with his legs spread wide open. <laughs> so, so when it happened, I was just like, I was, I was stunned. So we, we just like looked at each other for a second. I made eye contact for way too long and then I just shut the door I didn't say anything because I was so shocked I didn't say sorry I didn't say excuse me I didn't say like hey idiot lock the door next time I just looked at him closed the door walked out of the bathroom went back out to the lobby and the place we were sitting that McDonald's employee was going to have to walk right by our table when he came out of the bathroom so I just looked at my friend Josh I was like Josh we got to go He's like, wait, what's going on? I'm like, we, we, we need to leave. I'll explain in the car. Just get in the car and I'll tell you what happened. We got to go right now. So he was just like, okay, let's do it. And we left. I didn't have to see that McDonald's employee again. And then we got in the truck and I told him everything that happened. So yeah, people that don't lock the doors, that's A tier. That's a problem, you guys. Lock the stall door. It's not that hard. Next up, we got those squishy vinyl seats. You know that like you sit on and it's just like, it like compresses a little bit and there's like that slick vinyl plasticky stuff. Uh, those, are, those just feel disgusting. I don't like them, but once again, it doesn't create a huge problem. So I'll, I'll go ahead and put that D tier as well, along with uh, the warm toilet seats. Uh, next up, we have no toilet paper. Walk into a public bathroom, you go in, you do your thing, and then you reach for the toilet paper. It's not there. So you either got to be like call out to somebody and, and ask them, or if you're in there by yourself, you kind of do a little shuffle over to another stall and, and get, it's, it's super weird. I don't know. It's one of those situations where it's like, you never ask other people what they do in that situation. It's just kind of, there's just shame altogether associated with it. So I'm, I'm going to say A tier, no toilet paper, definitely a huge issue. Next up, outdoor bathrooms. When you go to like a gas station or a restaurant, you're like, oh, you have to use the outdoor restroom. And it's typically like really gross. Uh, so C tier, uh, you know, you can, you can do it. You can get your business done. It's not pleasant, but once again, dirty bathroom, it's, it's expected C tier. Next up, open toilets. And what I mean by that is where the toilet isn't like flushable. It's just 
a toilet with it's like a big hole in the ground. Not a porta potty, but like a functioning bathroom. Like at San Angelo State Park, they have these in some places. You just go in and you do your business into this giant hole in the ground. There's like a metal toilet sitting on top, but you open the toilet and it's just like a 10-foot pit of other people's dookie in there. And I don't know how they clean them out. I don't know how often they have to clean them out, but it's just all around gross. Falling in there is one of my biggest fears, right? I don't think it's big enough to fall. A child could fall in there. That could definitely happen. But I don't know if I could or not, but it's it's a huge fear and it's gross. It stinks. Uh, just the fact that you're doing your business on everybody else's business, I just don't like the thought of it. B tier. That's, that's pretty bad. It needs to change. We're in the 21st century. There's no reason why we should still have those toilets. Next up on the list is stalls with no doors. It's like they thought to build a stall, but they didn't think to build a door on it. Our high school locker room had this in there. The stalls didn't have doors on them. And like, I get what a locker room is. You know, you walk around, you see other people in their purest form, and it's it's not pleasant. You never like it, but you deal with it. But the least they could do is just put a door on the stall so you don't have to see them doing their business too. But, you know, that's that's not what they did. Stalls with no doors, it's a big issue. Just put a stupid door on there. It's not that hard. You already thought to put up the stall walls. Just put a door up. A tier. It's ridiculous. Finally, the last thing on the list. Once again, ladies, you may not ever experience this, but it's it's a problem in men's restrooms. Trough urinals. Urinals where multiple men can and do walk up to at the same time and relieve themselves. It's just... Once again, we have the capability to not do this. We have the capability to put single urinals to where it's it's yours for that 30 seconds or however long you're there. It's your domain. You go in there. No one else does. We don't need these trough urinals out here. Multiple men walking up right next to you and, and relieving themselves in the same thing at the same time. There's got to be some kind of like transitive property there right that's disgusting like i don't want to cross streams with somebody that's disgusting i mean why are we doing this y'all 21st century trough urinals like i feel like peeing in the same receptacle as someone else at the exact same time is like a it's like a violation of some kind of like like the sanctity of my body right it's like there's just certain things where, you know, like sexual relations that's meant to happen in the confines of a marriage. And there are just certain things that, that probably you just shouldn't do outside of those confines. And it's the same thing here. Like where I pee is, is a sacred place. And I feel like it just kind of violates that, that sanctity if we're just all kind of going in the same place. I don't know. Trough urinals. Like, why are we doing this, y'all? Why are we doing this? Definitely S tier. Absolutely horrible. We don't we don't need those anymore. Trough urinals. Ugh. Awful. Hey, you guys. Thank you so much for being here today. Hope you enjoyed today's episode, the first episode in our summer series. Come back next week. You can hear about post-millennialism. And if you paid attention today, you might could figure out what that means. If not, we'll talk about it next week. But hey, I want to have one of you guys on the show. Actually, I want to have a bunch of you guys on the show because I put out a survey recently and, and you had the option of checking a box saying like, hey, yeah, I would, I would like to be a guest on the show. Y'all got some qualifications out there. Let me tell you, some of you guys have like doctoral degrees. Some of you guys are published authors. Some of you guys are just really funny. Some of you guys have heard of post a podcast. Uh... Yeah, I want to have all you guys on the show, and maybe at some point we can make that a reality. But if you fill out that survey, you will be entered for a chance to win a spot on Not A Christian Podcast in the somewhat near future. So I've got a little idea brewing, okay? And it's going to be a drawing that we we decide. Like, here's here's who's going to be a guest on the show. And like I said, if you fill out that survey, 
you will be entered to win. Not only will you be entered to win once, you will be entered to win twice if you choose to do so. So there's a spot where you can put your name if you want, and at the bottom you can answer, yes, I would like to be a guest on the show. So if you fill out that survey in the drawing, you will be entered twice to be a guest on the show. There's some other ways to be entered into that little competition. If you go to the link in my bio and buy a sticker, you will be entered three times into that drawing. If you go to the link in my bio and buy a t-shirt, you will be entered five times into the... Wait, did he say t-shirt? Yes, he said t-shirt. Don't know if you've heard. We've got Not A Christian Podcast t-shirts available now. Go to the link in my bio on Instagram or Twitter or go to my personal Facebook page. I uploaded the link there. You guys, these, ter- these shirts are going to be cool. It's a pre-order, so it's not like you hit order and we start processing it and ship it to you within you know a couple of days. I'm going to be taking orders through July 5th, and once I get all the orders in, then I'm going to order them in bulk, and the reason I'm doing that is because I don't know how many I'm going to sell, and I, can't, I, I don't want to lose money on these, so I'm not just going to go ahead and order like 50 t-shirts and just hope I sell them all uh, because... If I sold like two, then that would put me in the hole quite a bit. But we've got t-shirts, and for every t-shirt you order, you will be entered into the drawing to be a guest on the show five times. So if you want to order 100 t-shirts just to get 500 entries into the the contest to be a guest on the show, be my guest. I would love for you to do that. But for every t-shirt you order, you will be entered five times. And finally, if you become a monthly supporter, once again, through the link in my bio on Instagram and Twitter, or just reach out to me in in whatever way you need to, and I'll send you that link, you will be entered five times to be a guest on the show. I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Alex, who this week became the very first in the history of the world, the first supporter of Not A Christian Podcast. So if you make money doing something, that means you're a professional, right? So I'm officially a professional podcaster now because I have a monthly supporter. And if you would like to make me a more of a professional or if you would like to be entered five times into the drawing, become a monthly supporter. So you have got a chance to get entered into that drawing 15 times. Two for doing the survey, three for buying a sticker, five for buying a shirt, and five for becoming a monthly supporter. And the deadline for that drawing is going to be July 5th when I order the shirts. So lots of exciting stuff coming up. Want to have one of you guys on the show within the next couple of months. But for now, that's all the evangelical filth I've got for you. That's a wrap and that's a frat snap. Next time, I promise I'll do just a little bit better later. <laughs>